Hello there and welcome to the September edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Tony Honigberg and I will be talking to Jeremy Sassoon, jazz pianist and singer regarding the Jeremy Sassoon's mojo, musicians of Jewish origin. I'm John Kay and I'll be talking to Bev Jacobson. She's the chief executive of Norwood and we'll be talking about their redevelopment plans for their Ravenswood site in Berkshire. And I'm Clive Roslin, and I'll be talking to Lee Lando, who's just reopened the most famous kosher restaurant in the western of London, Rubens. And I'm Phil Dave. I'll be speaking to Rabbi Debbie Young-Summers, who's the community educator for the movement of Reform Judaism, about their forthcoming annual dinner. And our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Danny Rich, senior rabbi of liberal Judaism. But before all that, here's a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month. The Board of Deputies has demanded an apology over a BBC World tweet about the death of an Israeli teenager killed in a bomb blast. The tweet was sent with the accompanying words, Israeli teenage girl killed in bomb attack near Jewish settlement in the occupied West Bank. Board President Marie van der Zyl said it's an appalling comment in the tweet and that the BBC should know better. A spokesperson for the BBC said this is a factual tweet which includes the location of the girl's killing. The new university's minister, Joe Johnson, has met with representatives of Jewish students and community organisations. They discussed anti-Semitism, religious freedom and other issues on campus. The delegation included members of the Board of Deputies, the Union of Jewish Students, the Jewish Leadership Council, the Community Security Trust and the University Chaplaincy. Mr Johnson said he had listened to the concerns and challenges Jewish students faced and that the government will take action to ensure everyone can thrive at university. Amazon UK has removed a number of sale items featuring a notorious photo of a massacre of Jews during the Holocaust after being alerted to their availability. It was discovered after an investigation by Israel's Channel 12 News found that Holocaust victim tank tops, t-shirts and hooded jumpers were available for purchase on the site. Israel has offered to help Brazil in battling fires raging in the Amazon rainforest. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro to offer assistance in extinguishing the blazes. In January, Israel sent a rescue team and equipment to Brazil to help in the search for hundreds feared dead following the collapse of a dam at a mine. A group of artists have condemned a forthcoming musical for casting non-Jewish actors to play Jewish characters, saying this is an overt appropriation of a culture and religion facing a crisis. The signatories, who include BAFTA winner Miriam Margulies and actress Maureen Lipman, called out the lack of Jewish representation in the forthcoming London production of Falsettos, saying it'll result in a heightened and characteristic misrepresentation of Jews that is built on secondary understanding. Falsettos production company, Celador, released a statement saying it did not ask cast members about religion, gender, age or race because it would be inappropriate to do so and that its recruitment process is free from bias and discrimination. And finally, a young cancer blogger who shared his experience of his battle with the disease to raise awareness has died. 
North Londoner Jack Morgan was 20 when he was diagnosed with undifferentiated carcinoma of the eye. He received the all-clear last year, but the cancer returned. In 2018, Mr Morgan featured in High Cancer Care's appeal video for its fundraising dinner, explaining how the charity's support had helped him. He was 22. John, thank you very much indeed. Well, here we are once again in the heart of JW3 in London and all geared up for what sounds quite an exciting show, I think, in prospect. But just before we get into the nitty gritty of all of it, I thought that we should acknowledge that unbelievably enough, this is the last episode of The Jewish Views for 5779. Yes, of course, Rosh Hashanah is nearly upon us once again and I don't want to be cliche but isn't it early this year (laughs) (laughs) I want to know why are the holidays always early or late but never on on time time? can someone please tell me when they're on time and of course they are actually the same time every year in the Hebrew calendar but I think September the 30th seems about right to me in some ways the very end of September not quite October you always find the weather changes September Rosh Hashanah usually the weather is good Mm. when it comes to Yom Kippur it's not so good. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yom Kippur is the beginning of the cold season, in my opinion. And therefore, I think it's about right now. I, I think there's a reason for that, because if you're fasting, you don't want to fast on a very hot day. Oh, that's true. I did that one year in Jerusalem. I just oh. ended up... It, I was, it was awful. I wow. spent my whole childhood fasting in hot weather in Africa, and it really was mm. hell. The no, thing is, with hot, with hot weather... You want to drink, certainly, but you don't necessarily want to eat very no, much. No, you? but it's the liquid, isn't it? Because just you just get dehydrated very quickly. You say that, but it's obviously... I know that people are going to agree with this statement quite quickly, but please reassure me somewhere along the lines. There is obviously something not right with me, because over the hot weather we've experienced, the limited hot weather we've experienced over the summer months here in the UK, I found myself so hungry. It's absolutely ridiculous. Everyone around me has said, I just need water. That's all I need. I just need a drink. But no, with me, I'm afraid it goes totally the opposite. And I just, the I'm ravenous. I'm so hungry all the time. The full banquet or nothing. Absolutely. It's the most bizarre <laughs> thing. So I'm very pleased to hear that Yom Kippur won't fall necessarily so if, on a hot day. If you lived in Israel or Australia, oh, be you'd doomed. be a very big person. I'd be. <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, I am a big person. But thank you. No, it is true, though. But I suppose in terms of Rosh Hashanah itself, though, I, I I actually quite like this time of year. I know a lot of the community for some reason dread it. I don't know why they do. I quite like it because I feel like it's a chance to reset. I always think of the non-religious New Year, in other words, the end of December, beginning of January, a chance to party, a chance to celebrate. But for me, I always think that the religious New Year is a chance to cleanse, if you will, a chance to reset. Well, it's an opportunity to reflect. Mm. And I think that's really handy, to reflect on the past year, to look forward to the next year. I enjoy Rosh Hashanah. I enjoy Sukkot. I can't say the same about Yom Kippur <laughs> or even Simchas Torah. But in fact, my grandfather, who was a rabbi, and I absolutely adored him, he always taught me, and he believed, that Yom Kippur was a day of great rejoicement because that was a day in which you could say... This is time now to start again and do all the bad things, stop doing all the bad things and start trying to do all the good things. I think he was absolutely right. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that is very much a religious ethos, isn't it? Yom Kippur is the start of the 
fresh year. But um, I've always found it curious, though, how it seems to be the wrong way around. We do the New Year celebration and then we atone. Wouldn't you not think we'd cleanse for the year gone past and then celebrate the New oh, Year? Now, that's just in case you do anything wrong on Rosh Hashanah. Ah, that makes no, to be sense. honest, that's <laughs> the, to be serious about it, that's because the days after, after Rosh Hashanah are called the days of penitence. Correct. No, I know, but I'm saying arguably it's the wrong way around, isn't no. it? No, I know what you mean, but the rabbis have an answer for that. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but they do have an answer for I think, it. I think Rabbi Clive has already mentioned that one. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> in that case, who am I to argue with Rabbi Clive? <laughs> but I, I do think when you're sitting in shul all day during Yom Kippur, you're right, it does give you a chance because you can't concentrate 100% on what you are reading. There are times where you switch off. Mm. And at those times, because you're not distracted by mobile phones or television or anything else, it does give you the chance to actually think about your life. To reflect on what, what's been and what's going to happen. Well, I'd suggest that the conversation has just been and let's find out about what's about to happen on this month's episode of The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. If there's one pastime that's widely associated with our community, it's music. Think of some of the greats of the 20th century, Paul Simon, Billy Joel, or Carol King. Well, if you've liked the names I've just mentioned, and then some, you'll love Jeremy Sassoon's Mojo, Musicians of Jewish Origin. It's on here at JW3 on Thursday, the 26th of September, and I'm delighted to say that to tell us more about it is the man himself, Jeremy Sassoon. Jeremy, welcome to The Jewish Views. Can you just tell me a bit about your background? I come from Manchester and still live in Manchester. I used to be a doctor and then became a psychiatrist and then decided to change career and went into music. I had done music through my childhood at the Royal Northern College of Music, classical music training, and went back to it. So and I've been a musician now for... A long time, should we say. The question comes to mind then, why did you go into medicine if music was what you really wanted to do? No, it wasn't the case. I I, I had a very confused childhood (laughs) and really couldn't decide which of the right one to go into. Conventional wisdom in those days was if your kid was going to do well in exams, they go into medicine. And although my family were a very musical family, I decided that was probably the right thing to do. And in the end, I did both, so that's not bad. Your parents weren't medics. No, no one. All musicians, not professional musicians, but they're both very musical, and all my brothers and sisters are very musical as well. So, right, you you play the piano. Do you play any other instruments? Yeah, I started playing the piano when I was five, and as said, became a classical pianist, and then took up the trumpet at eight, which doing two instruments was an entry requirement for the Royal Northern College of Music. Did, um, did those two and then carried on with just those two instruments until my 40s when I started singing. So that was very new. That's very late in life to start singing. Uh, it was indeed. It happened by accident. And, and did you have to take singing lessons to get your vocal cords ready for singing? Or was it just natural, did you? It, well, it all happened very suddenly because it happened by accident. I used to work as a keyboard player with a great singer and the two of us were known as a bit of a double act in Manchester and we had quite a big following we recorded our first album after working together for nine years 
And five days after the album was released, he decided suddenly he was never going to sing again. Oh, so they had to have someone and you so, had to step into his shoes. Absolutely. Someone had to sing these songs. I had a whole list of gigs. I had deposits paid, everything for that year and no singer anymore. So I decided, I wonder whether I can sing. I'd never done it. Never sang in the car or the shower or never sang. So I just decided to give it a go. I have a bit of a link here because at the age of 14 and 15, I was playing blues harmonica and singing blues in the folk and blues clubs in London. And at that time, Paul Simon was in London and I played harmonica for Paul Simon one evening. One evening, He probably won't remember who I am. I was 14-year-old playing harmonica wow. and it was a club called Les Cousins at 49 Greek Street and he was playing that club. I thought he was here for a longer, but I think it was probably only over about a three-week period. But That's an amazing... It seemed like forever and it's such a long time ago. What an experience. Yeah, absolutely, especially at the age of 14. But I didn't continue a musical <laughs> career, as you probably can see. Tell me a little bit about the show. About four or five years ago, I was asked to put together a show for the Leeds Jewish Festival. I hadn't done a Jewish festival before. I decided, well, what a, you know, I can't remember whether they asked me to do it on Jewish songwriters or whether I asked myself, can I do it on Jewish music? But basically, when I thought about it, I, when you think of Jewish music, when I thought about Jewish music, I kind of instantly thought of klezmer and Israeli horror and whatever and to be honest with you those musics don't actually resonate with me very strongly I have to admit and so I decided you know what I'm not going to do that show and then I went out on my normal gig that night and suddenly realized that two-thirds of the songs I was singing were written by Jewish mm. composers and so I just asked myself the question I had to think again and thought you know what is Jewish music is it music for Jewish people or music by Jewish people and I decided that it was both and on that basis decided I would do the show and I put it together a show of music by Jewish composers and it was a, I did a sort of rudimentary version of, of this but it went down very very well after that I just put it you know put my notes and music into a folder and thought one day I might do that again and four years later obviously doing a gig at JW3 I thought well let's work on that again Why do you think there are so many Jewish composers from the 20th century going back to the earlier part of the 20th century? I have no idea, I've got to be honest with you I haven't worked out that bit why there are and I'd be very interested to hear everybody's theories on that but there's just there's just such a plethora of, of Jewish composers the, and songwriters there were so many. I mean the Gershwins if we could just go back, Hammerstein, anybody, anybody you name from the early part of the 20th century happened to be Jewish. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you know why? Do you? I haven't got a clue. I wish I did me. know why. There must be something. Uh, there's something that I, I listened to a Radio 4 program probably about 10 years ago now when they were doing a comparison with a piece of Gershwin music mm -hmm. and they were doing the comparison to the music that you sing when you get called up to the Torah and there was a link you could hear the 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 same tune almost in some of his songs some of his tunes quite incredible so whether it comes back to Chazanot and all that sort of yeah. thing I don't know well in terms of the music and the comparison with the music that it's always you know everybody kind of knows that minor keys sort of define a lot of Jewish music and there's a very funny story without giving away too much there's a funny story where Gershwin was doing being very successful and about by 1926 Gershwin and Irvin Berlin mm. were flying and Cole Porter 
wasn't flying and he'd done lots of musicals and shows and it wasn't happening for him and they actually sat down had dinner one night I think it was I can't remember exactly where it was and Cole Porter says I think I know the answer to this for myself I'm going to have to start writing Jewish songs mm. and actually after that they noticed that his music changed and he started putting minor keys like like Love for Sale night and day mm. and all of a sudden it kicked off for yeah. him so Cole Porter and non-Jew decided he, to write he was writing as a Jew yeah, yeah. there you go uh, and that's what hit it for him I heard this very yeah. same story so tell me about your show at JW3 because we talk about Gershwin and you talk about Randy Newman and everything else tell me a bit more about that well it's not a really a very original idea doing a song about Jewish songwriters it's been done many times but I just noticed that most of the shows were sort of done by theatrical types who really maybe just want an excuse to, to sing the great American songbook and the Broadway musicals and I just suddenly started thinking to myself that's quite a narrow view of it and a narrow so I just wondered how how broad it was you know where does it start where, well it obviously finishes the current the present day how far early does it well centuries so I decided to sort of attempt something like a millennium of Jewish songwriters in 90 minutes and you brought it up to the current day but we don't have as many Jewish songwriters as we used to of course yeah there aren't that many that I think of right now that are currently making records and composing songs there are a few though mm. you know there were some sort of halcyon decades like you say you mentioned the early part of the century but I'm going to try and cover the 1950s 60s 70s 80s and so on it's on Thursday 26th of September at 7.30 tickets are £20 and they can get the tickets by contacting JW3 contact JW3 and it's on, online you, there's a listing online on the JW3 website and people can book from there and the website for JW3 is jw3.org.uk. Jeremy, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us today. My and pleasure. And good luck with the show. Thank you. See you on the 26th. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. It's probably fair to say that Jews are pretty good when it comes to matters pertaining to charity. After all, we're all about tikkun olam, or repairing the world. Arguably, one of the more remarkable Jewish charities in Britain is Norwood. Norwood's recently submitted plans for a £16 million development to its Ravenswood site in Berkshire. With us now to talk about this new project is the chief executive of Norwood, Bev Jacobson. Bev, when did the Ravenswood site in Berkshire actually begin? It's got a really interesting history. It started in 1953. A parent with a child with disabilities had absolutely no provision for them and put an advert in the Jewish Chronicle at the time, you know, uh, asking for other families of then what was called, the, the person belonged to the the parents of Backward Children's Society and they were looking for other such parents to come together and three families got together and on a trip out to Berkshire found the site and actually bought it and set up a school there originally and that and that was in 53 and it's it's been around ever since and some of the original people who joined the school are still living in in the village today why Berkshire because if you think about a Jewish community that's not necessarily where you would automatically want to set something up 
I mean, if you think about it, disabilities changed very much over the years. And what we're looking at today isn't the same picture as it was 70 years ago. So the whole concept of having people with disabilities, especially learning disabilities, comfortably accommodated in the community wasn't really a reality. Most people who had children with disabilities at the time kept them very well out of sight. And if you went onto the site, you'd probably understand why. I mean, I don't think they went looking in Berkshire. I think it was somebody that just happened to find a a site and sort of said, you know, wouldn't this be wonderful? And it is the most glorious piece of land. I mean, it's tucked away in the middle of forests and just surrounded by Greenbelt and there's farmland around it and a golf course and really a beautiful piece of land where anybody could have a tranquil life. Would money have also been a factor even back in the 1950s? 50s because buying yeah. property in Berkshire would have been even then cheaper than, say, London. Yeah, pr- pr- probably. I, I don't know that it was well thought out. I mean, and what they established there on on the land was something quite unique and ahead of its time, you know, because it was more than a school. It was a whole learning community. So it was really attracted professionals of the highest caliber who were interested in that area of work, you know, so it it was a really vibrant place for a a long period of time. And it's always tried to create a sort of village community, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, people enjoy levels of independence there that they just wouldn't have, you know, in uh, you know, in the locality because they don't have the same safeguarding risks around them. And there are opportunities for people to take part in village life where they can make a, a contribution, taking on meaningful roles, you know, whether it's the postman or, you know, working in the cafe. And, and so it's still a very meaningful life, you know, which is wonderful. When we look at the what Norwood does which is primarily targeted towards children. Ravenswood has people that are older than what we would call children. So so Norwood's history dates back 224 years now. So it's 1795. Exactly. Amazing. It is amazing. Is. And uh, I mean, you can chart the, the migration of the Jewish population, you know, w- with the history of Norwood. And uh, yeah, it was, it, it was always there to be the safety net for the children of the community. And uh, I think that where people, it fits in really well because quite a lot of the family issues that that come to Nord's door you, you know happen to be families that are struggling to deal with children with disabilities of sorts you know more today is a lot of autism you know the, the incidence prevalence has just increased enormously and it, it causes enormous strains on family so so it does fit together you know and I mean where we're really looking to improve our services is to make sure that we are able to to support and advocate for those with learning disabilities you know right through their lives so you, you know we can we can create a, a pathway for people you know into a very meaningful life in the future so Not, the people at Ravenswood are up to what age I think the oldest res- resident at Ravenswood is 78 but we have an equally big service in London looking after adults with learning disabilities and we have a woman of 97 in our services so you, you know we're we, we tend to have because we've had people living with us for so long we tend to have a lot of elderly people living with us now and uh, that brings and I've been really really moved since I've been at Norwood because I've sadly had to attend a a number of funerals because we've had a few people pass away in the short time that I've been there and what's been striking is how Norwood has actually 
been the family for those individuals, you know, and, and the prime person mourner at, 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 at one of the funerals was the carer of 23 years, you know, and, and the, the responsibility of the organization and, and the love that is given to people, you know, it, it is as, as though their family is, is quite something I've never seen before. Now, in this new development that you're proposing, you're looking for something that is modern, fit for purpose and accessible to everyone. I suppose virtually any new development is going to be modern, but of course they're not all accessible to everyone. Is that one of the reasons that you're looking to develop this? Because you know what was created in 1950s <laughs> isn't necessarily what's needed so, so now. There- the, the problems that we've had with our current cohort of people that are living there is that, you, you know, because they've been there for 70 years, or and, and I think there are over 30 people who've lived there for more than 50 years, is that they're all of an increasing age, and with it comes all sorts of mobility issues that weren't there before. So, so the accommodation is no longer fit for purpose. So part of what we need to do is, is to create accessible accommodation for them. Also... The, the whole idea of the village is is very counter the national agenda in England, which is all about inclusion. You know, the idea of an intentional visit village anywhere is is not popular amongst people who are at the forefront of thinking about how disability should be managed. And the opportunity to to create a whole community of regular houses and 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 a normal estate, you know, you know, on the same grounds allows us to combat that you know and and create you know keep the the special parts of what we have already but uh, allow for more integration and inclusion within a normal community life as well so let's talk about that integration because you're working with the developers charles church on this and they're going to be creating presumably also uh, private houses to to sell and 40% I think affordable and you're also saying that actually you could see some of the residents maybe moving into some of those homes so not necessarily just on the Ravenswood site but you really are looking for for the residents to to be more integrated with the general community. What, what I aspire for is constant growth for individuals regardless of where they are in their lives and for people with learning disabilities that's even more important to hold that ambition up always. So you know it's not it's not right for everyone but for those people who are able to you know live more independent lives it's it, it's a wonderful opportunity. You know we, we would always you know we, we would always provide enough support to keep people safe obviously you know and to create you know, make sure that the learning is always carrying on. So, you know, if it's a new experience, you, you know, that, that they'll always be well supported. But there is that opportunity. The other huge advantage for us is that, that we can possibly get more people who are working in the village living close by like that and transport to it has always been a problem. You currently have 111 residents. Do you see having a lot more then? I don't think we're, we're looking to expand it hugely. I think we're looking to create a different cohort over time. But we're just trying to improve the, the whole infrastructure of the place as well, which the, the, the Charles Church development allows us because they'll be improving the roads, the electricity, the water, and they're doing a massive uh, regeneration of one of our green spaces, you know, to make it accessible in, into accessible parkland. Well, of course, it's all subject to planning permission from Wokingham Borough Council, yeah. but hopefully all being well. We wish you well with that. Bev Jacobson, Chief Executive of Norwood, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. 
Well, it was back in May of this year that the community learned the shocking news that the only kosher restaurant in London's West End was to close after 46 years. I personally couldn't believe it. Well, thanks to our next guest, Rubens is set to reopen. And not only that, it's getting a bit of a well-earned facelift. But to tell us if we're still going to get the famous salt beef, which is the best salt beef I've ever eaten, I think, we can now chat to the man behind the purchase, Lee Lando. So answer my first question, which is, are we going to get salt beef again? Of course, we have the famous salt beef that has been passed down over generations since 1973. We have the son of the previous operators with us doing the handover. He's been with us already for a month and he's staying for another five to six weeks to make sure we get the recipe on point. So you're already running this, the restaurant now and it's, the food is exactly the same as it was before, only even better. Exactly. So we're already open to the public. We're not shouting we're open because we're still in soft launch mode. We're slowly getting the place reopened as it's been closed since Passover 2019. We've kept the same staff in the kitchen. Front of house has changed. I'm sure uh, a few of you may have heard some uh, funny stories over the years in uh, the front of house. Various customers getting booted out or uh, other various stories. So we've changed that, scrapped completely and brought new front of house managers and service providers. But yes, the so beef recipe is staying exactly the same and it will be for the foreseeable future. But am I right in thinking that you're going to have an extra part of the restaurant? Correct. So we have now changed the setup. So the front area is a grab-and-go where customers will pay at the till and have on the go their sandwich. Those in the West End that are in a hurry, they want a quick salt beef fix. The cabbies, that are they park outside, quick pickup and on, off their, uh, on their way out. And then the back, the rear of the restaurant, we now have table service. So for customers who want to dine casually and relax, have a glass of wine perhaps, steak on the menu, lamb chops, and schnitzel, the, the, the favorites that we previous had on, in the deli, they're all still being served, but with table service. So no more trays like before, like in the prisons <laughs> that you had to go and take your tray and then walk over which was very difficult, especially if you came with a, f a large family and the kids and so on. So now we have for the same price. Uh, for the same price? For the same price. Wow. You'll get table service. And in fact, we've reduced some of the prices, talking about price. So My goodness. we give the pickle for free. <laughs> we don't charge <laughs> a pound ten. So we've, we've changed that following a lot of feedback. I mean, since we started monitoring the social media channels, about 90% of, of the inbox of the messages was, please don't charge for the pickles, please don't, don't charge <laughs> for the pickles. So we've listened to the, to the customers, to the audience, and we've introduced a skinny salt beef version, which is less meat in the salt beef, so it's half the portion, and the price is dramatically lower. It's $7.95 so for a smaller salt beef sandwich which can definitely fill one up. Not myself personally, because I have a big appetite, but people who want a lighter lunch fix or dinner, then definitely the lighter salt beef, the skinny salt beef sandwich is a good fix. So you've been running these sort of restaurants for some time now, have you? Yeah, correct. I started in 2007, 
thinking of new kosher concepts. I was very young at the time, I was 18 coming to 19. And we launched Pizzazza in Hendon in 2008, January. The idea was to bring something unique and cool and to provide youngsters, teenagers, young professionals a kosher place they can hang out and not have to go to non-kosher alternatives. They can feel they have, you know, cool music, cool vibe, nice food, funky, and yet be kosher. So I had, at the time, thought of all the fantasies I had as a child, as a teenager, uh, coming to 18, 19, and put it on paper and basically took this canvas and brought it to life. Did you come from a family that had been running restaurants? So my father is in property. He owns Kingsley's Estate in Golders Green, but he had Art to Heart at the time, which is a restaurant in Golders Green. I'm not sure it was if you guys are familiar, a Mediterranean restaurant. But that was, he, he doesn't consider himself a restaurateur, but myself as a child, I was around Art to Heart. Always food. Oh, it was a lot of food around yeah. us. He was also then involved in Tutigusti and Edgeware. So he's, he's dabbled with uh, restaurants, but he, he definitely doesn't consider himself a restauranter. So you've never thought about replacing probably what was the most famous restaurant in London, Bloom's in the East End. Would you like to take that over and start that over again? <laughs> I think people have kind of forgotten about Bloom's as far as an entity that is trading. I'm sure every every... Jew in London at least knows the brand Blooms but I think the goodwill as trading as a going concern and you know for us while we were refurbishing Rubens should have seen hundreds of people walking past coming knocking on the shutter trying to see if we're open or not it was still a live business that people were shocked that when they arrived it was closed so it's a kind of swifter process to relaunch yeah. whereas blooms i think it will be very complicated to revive it although as you say it's it's uh, it's definitely one of the establishments so you but you're going to be obviously food. tremendously successful are you not thinking of other places in london where you could open of bro? course yeah of course so for rubens we definitely I mean, I think if we would be opening Blooms, just to finish answering your question, it would be competing with ourselves now that we've taken on the <laughs> Rubens brand. So I don't know if that would be the best idea. But to open more Rubens locations, then we're considering on our roadmap the city. We're considering to bring Ashkenazi food back to northwest London. So anywhere, be it Golders Green, Edgware and the likes. There's currently no Ashkenazi food in northwest London, which I think is a huge potential and huge demand, huge gap in the market. Have you ever thought about starting a Sephardi restaurant? I think there's plenty of Sephardi restaurants. Where? Every restaurant. Tell me where. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to campaign here uh, advertise <laughs> <laughs> our competitors, but uh, I think every restaurant, every restaurant in Golders Green that you go to, they be, some, of our, some of them are actually part of our group, like Peter is a kind of Sephardi Middle Eastern street food, or I can talk about the competitors. My friend Sammy's is kind of Sephardi food. There was Yerushalmi that closed down recently. There's a few others around. There's quite a few Sephardi. I think the majority, White House is Sephardi. 
but there's no Ashkenazi food that is kosher in northwest London, and, and that will be one of our and targets. You're, but you're the only Ashkenazi kosher restaurant in the West End. The We're the only kosher restaurant in the West End. Completely kosher. Completely kosher, and we're as well serving Ashkenazi food. And I'd like to add that Rubens is also the longest trading kosher establishment in the UK, in fact. Oh, in the whole UK? In the whole UK. So coming to 47 years, slight gap between Passover and us taking over and doing the refurbishment. But yeah, it's coming to 47 years. What's the future hold for you now? So apart from the roadmap of opening various locations that we have in mind and in planning, then the current location, what we're working on is we've launched the deli with grab-and-go and table service and currently under construction we're working on a fine dining restaurant at 79 Baker Street at the, the Rubens itself. I can't tell you the particulars because we're not releasing the information at this moment but I can assure you there is going to be a big surprise and we're going to make a big impact in the fine dining cuisine in the kosher market. Well, I wish you every success, and I'm sure you will have it. Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, as we've already established on this episode of The Jewish Views, many charitable organizations rely heavily on donations in order to carry out their vital work for the community and beyond. However, you might be forgiven for not realizing how different branches of the religion also rely on donations. Well, on the 12th of September, the Reform Judaism movement will hold their annual fundraising dinner in a London location. To find out more about what the evening is hoping to achieve, and indeed what some of the funds will be going towards, we can now speak to Rabbi Debbie Young-Summers, who's community educator at Reform Judaism. Rabbi Debbie, first and foremost, welcome to The Jewish Views. Thank you. And I suppose we do have to clear up the myth, really, because I don't even know if I realise that the different branches of the religion required or relied on donations. You somehow just think, well, you pay synagogue membership fees, what on earth do you need donations as well for? So the synagogue membership fees partly contribute to funding the movements and I think the finances are not my speciality but I know that each movement deals with those issues of funding differently you know I think the United Synagogue is much more centrally led whereas we see ourselves as almost serving our communities like a civil service but certainly a a proportion does go to um, funding these centralised services so that we can support our communities on um, areas like education, conversion, all sorts of bits that it makes sense to collaborate on rather than each synagogue trying to do it on its own. And of course, the movement for Reform Judaism is so much more than just a synagogue organisation, isn't it? I mean, it's the same with all branches, I know that. But having had experience of what goes on in the Reform Judaism movement myself, having been a member of a Reform community for decades now... I know that it is so much more than just a synagogue, isn't it? Yeah, I think all the movements are certainly there primarily to serve their synagogue communities, to support them, to help them grow and develop and to provide 
centralised resources for them. But at the same time, we're there to give a voice to the Jewish world in the, the public. We're there to support youth movements who are not necessarily uh, coming out of synagogue life. They need central support. Um, a, a large part of what we do is RSY Netza and supporting them. And, and for what, those who don't know what RSY Netza is, sorry, just remind those So that's who don't the Reform Synagogue Youth Netza. Oh. Sounds much less cool. <laughs> but there are fantastic youth movement who you know run summer camps and Israel tours but also weekends in synagogue sleepovers and resources for Hedarim and all sorts of things like that. I think there'll be a lot of people who'd be quite reassured that you say a lot of resources go towards RSY because the truth is that for many years now the feeling has been that younger members of the community don't necessarily engage with synagogue life, don't necessarily engage with the different branches of the religion. They identify as, quote, culturally Jewish. And as a result of it, they don't necessarily have a need to be a part of reform, united, Mazzotti, liberal, whatever it may be. They don't identify with it. So it might be quite reassuring to know that a lot of resources do go to the youth I mean, movement. I think there will always be cultural Jews who might be a member of a synagogue or not member of a synagogue, and actually their children may go on youth movement events whilst not being a member of a synagogue. Um, and RSY Netza does have lots of participants who aren't necessarily from reform synagogues. We'd actually love to see more reform synagogue youth participating because quite often there are lots of different people whose access point to their Judaism might be through the youth movement, which is quite a unique way in. But they, they do fantastic work. And actually, one of the things we're focusing on at the dinner this year is our mental health work, which really began as a support within RSY Netza and has grown beyond that because we are seeing such epidemic levels of, of need for support throughout the community. Well, we'll talk about the annual dinner in just a moment's time, because obviously that is one of the reasons that you are here today to tell us a bit about the annual dinner. But I suppose let's pick on you slightly first because your <laughs> title is Community Educator. That's right. That's a lot of pupils. <laughs> it is a lot so of pupils. So care to share exactly what it is that you do? So I do all sorts of things. I'm kept very busy and out of trouble. But one of the largest parts of what I do is to support all our 42 communities in their educational resourcing. So I run teacher training days and CPD for senior educators. We run programs, for example, through before the High Holy Days, helping people think through family service planning. We're doing that in partnership with PJ Library, you know, working with other communal organisations. We run Shaleh Tzibor courses, service leading courses um, online to help people all over the country access those resources. We create online learning opportunities. We've got a series of Elul thoughts going out every day during Elul, um, preparing us for the High Holy Days and thinking about climate change. Another part of what I do is to support our seven cross-communal Jewish day schools, help resource them, help represent them at the Department for Education. And so then, I think in a nutshell, it's fair to say you twiddle your thumbs quite a lot. <laughs> I'm not very busy yeah, at all. No, not at all. Um, <laughs> and, and then we try to make sure that we're also able to give voice to Reform Judaism in, in the public arena by meeting lovely people like you. Well, I'm very kind, you know, <laughs> and we're very pleased to meet lovely people like your good self. Well, I suppose without further ado, we should talk about the annual dinner. For security reasons, in case anyone's wondering, we're not giving away the location of where the annual dinner is going to take place. But we have said it's a London location, so one can only assume it's going to be quite a grand, quite a lavish affair. 
it, it has actually been scaled back somewhat in the last few years. As oh, I that's think, very reassuring. This is the first year <laughs> I've been invited, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is always very, very lovely. It's a really nice evening. It's a chance for people to come together to celebrate Reform Judaism, really, and to enjoy a good meal and learn a bit about what we've been doing and hear from interesting speakers this year. We've got Judge Robinder, who does the rounds, I know, of these communal affairs, but is a, a great supporter of Reform Judaism. Well, he's also, apart from being a great dancer, as we learned on Strictly Come <laughs> Dancing, he's also a great speaker as well. He is. We're looking forward to that a lot. So, And what kind of experience will someone who is going to the evening get? I mean, obviously you say that the problem is that with a lot of these fundraising dinners, and I have been, I've been lucky enough to go to quite a few, it always seems to be that they make it no hidden secret that obviously it is first and foremost a fundraiser, which absolutely is essential. But then a lot of the time people will, shall we say, recognise that that's the primary reason they're there. And a lot of the times it's frustrating that they don't realise that actually it is, as you say, a nice chance to come together and to celebrate the organisation that you're actually talking about. What would you say that the Reform Judaism Dinner is going to do to ensure that, first and foremost, OK, it's a fundraiser, but also there are other things? So I think there are lots of ways we do that. Last year, I was really, really chuffed that I was able to, I was given the opportunity to put together a table of our educators who weren't expected to give on the night, although it would be lovely if they did, but for them to feel that they're working away through the week in their little synagogue or their big synagogue, creating resources all the time, can be quite isolating, but to come together with other educators and celebrate what they do and feel that they are an important part of the work of the movement. This year, we're gonna be hearing from a variety of individual stories, highlighting the work of the Bet Din, which is our court and conversions. I've been working for the last three four years on a conversion curriculum for the country which we're going to be launching at the dinner so people will get to see the fruits of that work which i'm delighted is nearing its end it's been fascinating but does that um, mean you have to get up and do a speech i don't know no one's asked me to yet <laughs> but we'll see I'll, I'll hopefully be there at least to talk to people who want to have a chat about the curriculum we'll have examples of it there for people to see and we're going to be hearing from converts we're going to be hearing from the mental health team and, and a bit about the work that they're doing and and I I suppose it's really about celebrating where the money when it's given will go to and what work it supports and it is i suppose that without wanting to sound too childish it is quite an exciting event isn't it i hope because so. you know more often than not okay we like we've already established that these are very serious events and there is a purpose behind it but ultimately it is jolly good fun if you do go to yeah, it's a nice opportunity to put your good good shoes on and get your hair done and you know bring out the glad rags and get together with people who have the same values and passions as you do who want to support really good work going on in the Jewish community and want to create a future for that community well one could argue it's a little bit like going to a bar mitzvah or a wedding where you don't know absolutely anybody so you know and, and well, well you'll know me Phil well, they, I was going to say I know you guys so that's quite <laughs> exciting and hopefully I know the other people sitting at my table because there is actually a group of us going good but all the same well look naturally we wish you the uh, the very best of luck with it every success to it and all of that thank you. and thank you very much indeed Rabbi Debbie Young Summers for telling us about it on this episode of The Jewish Views thank you for having me and our rabbinic thought for the month comes from Rabbi Danny Rich Senior Rabbi for Liberal Judaism on the 28th of November 1990, in Downing Street, on being asked to form a government, Sir John Major spoke of his objective to create, I quote, a nation at ease with itself. Whether he achieved this or not, it is evident in the last few years, Britain has found itself in a state of parliamentary stalemate and political rupture, 
as it seeks to fulfil the mandate of the referendum to leave the European Union. The coming High Holy Days and its process of Teshuvah, of returning or atonement, is of course first and foremost relevant to the individual as he or she reflects on the vagaries of the past year. It is true there is much good in each one of us, but we become poignantly aware of time and talent wasted, of being so much less than we know we might have been. The gift of the preparatory month of Elul and the first ten days of Tishri, including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, present the ideal opportunity for self-reflection, including making good those damaged relationships, approaching and apologising to those whom we know we have offended, forgiving those who may have wronged us, and finally approaching our Creator, the Eternal God, about whom Midrash declares, Open for me one gate of repentance by as little as the point of a needle, and I will open for you gates wide enough for carriages and coaches to pass through. This process of returning to God and to our better selves is described by the English term atonement, or being at one with oneself. How so for the nation at large, which is far from being at one or at ease with itself? Of course, a robust democracy does not require everybody to agree. Indeed, it needs passionate disagreement. Nevertheless, the capacity to finally reach a resolution, the humility to accept defeat, and the manner of how the debate is conducted are also signs of a healthy nation. I am reminded of the Talmudic schools of Hillel and Shammai, which by all accounts rarely agreed and frequently engaged in tortuous and lengthy explorations of issues. In spite of so doing, the Talmud in Erevim 13b declares that concerning a dispute which lasted three years, the views of both the disputing parties are, I quote, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim chayin, these and these, both are the words of the living God. How much more at ease would our nation be with itself if debate could be conducted against such a backdrop of mutual appreciation of contrary views? Thank you very much goes to Rabbi Danny Rich, the senior rabbi from the liberal Judaism movement for our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Jeremy Sassoon telling us about Jeremy Sassoon's mojo, that's musicians of Jewish origin, on at JW3 on Thursday the 26th of September. For more information, jw3.org.uk. Thank you to Bev Jacobson, chief executive of Norwood, who was telling us about their redevelopment of the Ravenswood site. Also to Lee Landau, restauranteur and entrepreneur, telling us about the reopening of Rubens Restaurant in the West End of London. Good luck to them and may Rubens continue for at least another 46 years. And of course to Rabbi Debbie Young-Summers, community educator at the Movement for Reform Judaism. And she was here to tell us about the annual dinner for the Reform Movement. And of course, thank you goes to you at home for listening. We mustn't forget to give 
an enormous thanks to our producer Sue Greenberg who believe me worked tirelessly putting this month's episode together in particular and of course if you would like to listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of the Jewish Views again you can always go to our website jewishviews.co.uk please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application the Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3 from all of us here we wish you Shana Tova have a very happy 5780 that does sound weird doesn't it and enjoy the high holy days we'll see you next month here on the jewish views goodbye <laughs>